Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi there, Meredith Michael here. You might be wondering where Phil and JF are. Well, they're wandering. If Weird Studies is a zone, then it is a place that can be visited but not inhabited, and even the most dedicated and stalwart of explorers occasionally require respite. Therefore, your trusted guides to the Weirdosphere are scheduling a short break from the show for the month of September, and will return with episode 107 on September 29th. In what follows, they take a moment to survey the path that Weird Studies has taken so far, reflecting on its place in their careers and lives, as well as the podcasting medium itself. In true Wanderer fashion, the conversation takes some surprising turns before arriving at its destination, which leads into territories nonetheless illuminating. The first part of the episode explores the experience of the flow state, in which one becomes so absorbed in a task as to almost forget oneself and the resulting questions about consciousness, agency, and free will. The flow state is sometimes called being in the zone, which is fitting because it is also a kind of zone in the weird study sense. Just as those in the zone have described the feeling of touching some kind of larger, emergent consciousness, as it turns out, being in the zone of weird studies, too, means being part of a larger movement, a weird turn in our culture. I, for one, am very grateful to have been part of the egregore that is Weird Studies for a year now, and I am so glad that Phil and JF introduced me to the Weird community. A month is not so long, but if you find yourself missing your hosts too much during the break, be sure to check out the Weird Studies Patreon, which will continue to be updated. I can also personally vouch for the fan discord, which is the locus for tons of conversations, recommendations, and friendly banter about art, philosophy, religion, and everything weird. So fear not, no one can resist the pull of the Weird Studies Zone for too long, and regularly scheduled programming will be back before you know it. In that spirit, here is episode 106, and here's to another 106 episodes in the future. Should we start with just a few words on the Green Knight or just forget about it? No, we should mention that yeah. that happened. So, so we both yeah. thought we both saw the Green Knight, which is, I believe, in still in theaters. And it's gonna be kind of a cool thing. We don't normally talk about things that are hot off the press. I guess we did that with Piranesi, but usually it's older pieces of art that we talk about. 
Yeah, Piranesi, but that was pretty exceptional. Yeah, but, you know, we've, we were looking for something where we didn't have to do a lot of preparation, just maybe go to see a movie, and it's an unusual movie. It's, it's a rare mainstream film release that actually plays in weird territory, that really wants to cast a mood, cast a spell. Yeah. And we'd heard all kinds of good things about it, went and saw it, and both of us were super into it, and then had a fucking lame conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just it was too fresh. Work. It was too fresh. And I was, yeah. you know, I was too caught up in the messaging. Like you mentioned that on Discord. I was all about, oh, what the movie is telling us about, like contrasting the poem with the movie and how it's reflecting changes in, I don't know, ideas about chivalry and masculinity and all that sort of thing. And I, I don't know. It just, um, I thought the conversation, I don't know. I didn't listen to it. You did, but I felt okay yeah. about it, but I felt we were being a little bit didactic. Yes. Um, yeah. That's the word. It wasn't our style. Yeah, I, I, I just had a really bad feeling about it. Listen to it. There was one 20 minute section. I was like, well, I can cut that out and it makes it better, but still on reflection, I was like, there's still just some it's just not a good episode. And I was yeah, trying just to figure to, out why. Never took off, never lifted off. Yeah, never took off. The whole time we were talking, I actually had this sort of voice in my head being like, well, this isn't going very well. Yeah. Not, not, you know, not judging you, but like certainly kind of a little devil on my shoulder telling me that I was stinking up the joint. And I can tell you as a musician, as a pianist, I have a lot of experience with that little devil. You know, mm -hmm. when you're playing music, the times where it really goes beautifully, where it really goes well, are the times where you don't have a divided consciousness. You're not right. sort of, there isn't some split off part of yourself watching yourself play. You know, it's just that your, your consciousness is collected in a single, I don't know. Just like a single, just in one basket. And consciousness doesn't just mean the stuff between your ears. Like there's also the piano that you're playing, the music that you're playing. In some sense, you and the music are an indissoluble unity. You're, you're um, in what Bergson would call Zuré. You know, you're in pure duration where there's no distinctions between things anymore insofar as uh, right. concepts go, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're the piano, the piano is you, it's all happening. Yeah. And you, quote unquote, are hardly even playing at all. Like when you get done, I mean, the subjective experiences, I walk out on stage, I take my bow, I start playing and suddenly it's over. Yeah. And I'm vaguely aware of having played a concert of music in between those two moments, but it's all very vague and that I really don't know what came out until I listen to the playback, until I listen to a recording. And I'm not the only person who's felt this. This is a well, widespread feeling classic. among musicians. Yeah. 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 Um, sometimes people will express it as saying, I'm not playing the music. The music is playing through me. Yeah. And that's a very spiritual thing. It's one reason why a lot of jazz musicians will talk about improvisation in quasi-sacral terms, because they feel that it is an improvising that they touch something that is supra-personal, something that goes beyond the mere self, mm -hmm. uh, that the music making is something that transcends just me and my little wants. There's yeah. a wonderful documentary on freestyle hip hop, like freestyle rhyming called Freestyle, The Art of Rhyme. And it's notable how many of the freestyle rappers who are interviewed in that documentary will talk about God or 
some higher force or the life force or something. But we'll talk about what they do in spiritual terms. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think like, oh, well, maybe there's a special category of hip hop, of spiritual hip hop, which there is. But it's not that. It's more like just in the truly abandoned doing of the thing. Yeah. That you touch upon an emergent consciousness that includes and transcends your own. Yeah. And perhaps talking about that in terms of Dure is the way to go. But One in way. any event, yeah. it's one way to go. And, you know, you become aware of it. Like I can tell you at times when I've fallen off the high wire, like I kind of get into that flow. And then if you form the thought, shit, what am I doing? Yeah. Like I said, you know, your sense of time changes and you, everything just kind of flows together. But if you suddenly realize that you're already in the last third of a composition that you're playing, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm in the recapitulation of the sonata. How the fuck did I get here? If you think that thought, it's like waking from a dream. And then suddenly, poof, that little demon that sits on your shoulder and observes your playing and tells you not to fuck up that run that's coming up. Oh, you fucked it up. You know, that like divided consciousness, poof, it pops back into existence yeah. and then you fuck it up. And then all of a sudden you ha- usually have an enormous memory slip if you're playing memorized music or maybe, you know, if you're an improvising musician, you just kind of lose the plot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So all of which is to say that happens in podcasting too. Our best shows are the ones where I just kind of get into that zone and that did not happen on the Green Knight episode. It, That's it did what I was not. trying to say. And it might be surprising that that would happen at all. That phenomenon would happen at all when it, in, in contexts or in situations like this podcast where we're so conceptual and so, yeah. uh, but it does. The way it feels is that there's there's a direction things are going in and all we have to do is kind of follow it. And, yes. And in that case, we just, I just kept like, we were having to push the cart up a hill, you know, we just had to keep straining to get it, to keep it going as opposed to like most of the time where it's, you just realized, oh, there's like a horse pulling this thing and we just have to kind of sit here (laughs) Um, (laughs) and it'll do its work. But yeah, yeah. And, you know, that sort of phenomenon is actually quite common. I know there's a whole psychological literature on flow states and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, just when you're driving, you know, um, this doesn't happen to me anymore. But uh, in the first few years after I got my driver's license, and I got mine pretty late, that was in my early 20s, uh, because I lived downtown so i never really needed a car until then i would if i thought of the fact that i was driving all of a sudden every movement every gesture every part every component of the driving process became a matter of me consciously doing it and it got really really scary um Mm. and uh and I remember having that experience a few times. So, you know, some of these flow states are actually quite common. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing yeah. that so many people can drive cars and, and not smash into each other. Although the car accident is a, uh, a, like a catastrophic element, I think, of modern life. It's unbelievable yeah. how many people lose their lives in the most violent fashion to car crashes. But... Uh, yeah, so we need a flow state for that. It's really highly dangerous, hazardous work we're doing when we're driving. And so... Or podcasting. Or podcasting, yeah, exactly. Because those two crash and burn. But Dangerous business. But the thing is that there's a difference, I think, between what's happening, say, when you're performing music or doing a podcast, perhaps, 
doing something creative and doing something like driving or walking, right? Um, obviously, uh, different parts of the brain, if you want to put it in neurological terms, are lighting up. And there is something kind of quasi or necessarily quasi-religious about the creative flows. Um, mm-hmm. They manifest as spiritual in some essential way, I think precisely because they involve they involve parts of the mind or the brain or whatever that have to do with ideas, with morality, with telos, where things are going, where things come from, the interiority of, of the person. So I guess that you can't really extricate the kind of for lack of a better term, the, the religious element from artistic or creative flow states. They're just part of it. Um, yes. And that sounds like I'm trying to say that in the end, they're just as neurological as any other flow state, like driving or walking or dr- running or climbing. Um, but so are you concerned that what you're implying here is that that religious dimension, for want of a better word, to creative activity and flow states is as reducible to yeah, that's, physi- physiology as anything else yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So in you, other words, it's not spiritual, it's not transcendence. It's just your brain doing a certain thing that it likes to do. Yeah. I guess those could be just words we use to describe particular neuronal, neurological events, you know, or processes. Right. I've been listening to, uh, what's his name? Sapolsky. He's a famous neuroscientist who taught at uh, Stanford. I was wondering if you'd ever cross paths with this guy. He's, uh, he's like did this- you post a video of that guy on the fan discord? I may have. Yeah. I think I did. Was he's got a big beard talking- and long hair. Yeah. 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 You did. You did post something of his. Yeah. Yeah. I started just it's kind of fucked up. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a cool guy. Um, uh, oh, actually what I posted was an interview that was filmed after his retirement where he's trying to square his complete rejection of the very idea of free will with the fact that if we give that idea up, we have nothing left. <laughs> like, yeah. like we're, we're, and yeah. he, he's, but I really admired his uh, ability to not only to face that, but to articulate it because it seems to me like a lot of materialist atheists aren't able to, go there at all they just basically find a way to wave it off or just whistle past the graveyard yeah exactly and he was able to go there and i found that interesting but it just i'm all this by way of saying that i'm a little bit of a in a neuroscience kind of mindset these days because i was really impressed with what i learned following his class i mean things that i'd read before but he's a very good teacher and he'll he'll explain, for example, how a neuron functions, uh, obviously in simplistic ways. That, you know, uh, but still, you get to see how amazingly complicated and complex and and sophisticated the human brain or any brain for that matter is. But what I observed is that it's something that Bruno Latour would write about a lot. It's that. What they do when they argue that human beings have no free will in the classical Western sense of that concept, what they do is they take agency away from the individual and they give it to the neurons or they'll give it to the proteins yes. in the neurons or they'll give it right. to you know, the neurotransmitters. Uh, it, there's always agency there. They can't right. communicate a single idea without assuming agency at some level. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of fascinating right yeah yeah Yeah. 
And, you know, I guess it's an interesting question to ask. Is that just because of language? Because our language is such that we can't imagine actions without agents? That on the level of language, we're just hardwired to talk about, for example, the selfish gene. If we want to talk about how, right. gene, you know, in the selfish gene, Dawkins bends over backwards to say, I'm talking as if these genes have an agency, a will, an intention, a goal, but th that's just as if. That's yeah. not, just they don't heuristic. actually have that. Yeah. But the thing is that he, he can't not do that. Yeah. I read one essay by Latour that I haven't been able to, I'm trying to finally, I know that I put a link somewhere in my notes, but where he explains basically the way I understood it is that in science, in actual scientific work, whether theoretical or empirical, experimental, uh, I'm paraphrasing, okay? Uh, but the same process happens. You begin at the hypothesis stage, you assume agency. At the conclusion, agency is there as well, because you can't actually explain a theory without assuming agency, as Dawkins recognizes. You have to talk as if. It's only in the middle of the process where there's something going on with the translation of, the, of, of, of scientific concepts into mathematics where agency disappears for a moment. But that's because you've taken this process outside of any temporal framework and are, you're just looking at it in a purely formalistic way. You're looking at how the parts connect with one another. And then it becomes possible to say, well, where's the agent in here, right? And then you don't have to talk about agency in mathematics. But then by the time you're finished and your theory is complete and it's ready to be presented, agency is snuck back in. It's back in. You just can't. And you could always say, well, that's just because of language. But then again, you have to wonder why this type of profoundly, essentially, necessarily agential language could arise in a world where agency doesn't exist at all. Um, right. I think it's just as good to start with agency as to assume that it's at the end. Like it's, it's all over yeah. the, the process. So, right. Right. Is, that's what allows me to resist a kind of purely materialist construal, which would, as Sapolsky recognizes fully, which leads directly into a kind of nihilism. Well, and this is why I said it's kind of fucked up because, I mean, the guy isn't fucked up. He's a thoughtful, gentle, well-spoken man. Hippie. Yeah, I, you know, there's a kind of a... Yeah, a gentle thoughtfulness in the way he expresses himself. But it's strange for me to see that gentle thoughtfulness articulating a nihilistic point of view. <laughs> that and, and him commenting on that and like being fully aware of it. And there maybe it's just me, or maybe it's the mood I was in when I watched it. But I felt I got a a, a tinge of like sadness. Yeah. Of like regret, sorrow. And I was thinking, man, that is a a modern form of ascetism. Yeah. It's a kind of ascetism, just as, you know, the sannyasins of old, you know, the holy men in training, the ascetics that the Buddha trained with before he became the Buddha, doing heroic ascetisms, starving yourself and beating yourself, rolling around on broken glass or whatever the hell all in aid of mortifying the self to burn away the fleshy envelope and to arrive at the true Atman, the, the yeah. soul, the core of being that is 
you know, the, the ascetic believes to be beyond the material. And this is different in most important ways. It, for one thing, it's not framed as a spiritual practice. So, you know, Robert Sapolsky isn't engaged in a religious kind of framework here. He's not thinking of the soul as something that has to be redeemed from our fallen material nature. On the contrary, he's a thoroughgoing materialist, and I can't imagine that his way of thinking leaves any room whatsoever for the soul. Indeed, if you negate free will, it seems to me that you are negating the soul. Oh, yeah, he definitely negates the soul, for sure. And yet, I'm sort of reminded of a kind of almost religious ascetism where yeah. you willingly undergo, it's like taking a vow of poverty or a vow of silence or something. You willingly undergo privations that would break an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And the privation that he is undergoing is removing a sense of, of um, an anchor of meaning. I mean, I realize that meaning is an extraordinarily vague word, but, uh, and maybe we would do well to avoid it entirely. Oh, I think it's useful here. I think it's a good, I think it's the right word. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. You, but finish your I, thought. I mean, that is a very modern form of ascetism. And the question is, what, are, what do we get out of it? The, the Christian penitent comes closer to Jesus, comes closer to God. The truth Right. So perhaps that's one thing it has in common. The idea to, to get to the truth, you have to give up something and something you will miss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I see it as profoundly kind of Spinozan, right? His way of uh, th that type of conscious and I, I would call it something, something like spiritually responsible materialism, right? Uh, materialism yeah. that is able to face the consequences of its own um, yeah. uh, axioms. So. I agree that there's something very ascetic about the way Sapolsky talks in that little video, which we'll post in the show notes because it's become quite relevant now. It is a way of reconciling yourself with the truth, a truth that transcends our, let's say, our illusions about agency. And now I'm just assuming that the ascetics, both the modern and ancient ones are right. I, I don't subscribe to that view, but transcending the illusions of the self to... Uh, reconcile yourself <laughs> with the way things are. And and yes. like you can see this all over in his teaching. He's often, he's a champion of, for example, pharmaceuticals, you know, um, antipsychotic medication. Um, uh, he, 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 he believes that there is, although the environmental factors, of course, have been demonstrated to matter a lot in, in neurological situations, like how you think makes a difference. And um, he believes, he's, you know, typically believes that a combination of therapy and medication is the way to treat the brain. That ultimately he wants us to completely forego, eliminate the idea of responsibility and blame when it comes to behavior. He believes that behavior is entirely determined by a genetic, neurological factors and by extension, environmental factors, but only in so far as environmental factors or experience impact the genetic and the neurological. That, that, mm -hmm. That's, we're entirely like meat machines for him. So mm -hmm. to become enlightened in that paradigm is to reconcile yourself with that, to stop trying to 
try, trying to try, <laughs> and just basically give yourself over to the scientific process, mm. uh, which will now take mm. care of everything, which, yeah. which functions exactly like a kind of doctrine, if not a church. Um, yeah. Yeah. Submission. So you know, the, it, as, yeah. as, as it is often said, Islam means submission. Yeah. And I believe that submission is the most important aspect of religion that almost nobody talks about. Because we moderns like to say, I don't get down on my knees for anybody. It's just like uh, getting down on your knees is actually, and you know, like metaphorically speaking, submitting. Yeah. That's the first step of getting real in any system, whether we're talking science or, or some actual according to Hoyle religion, yeah. um, or undergoing an artistic practice. Like, you know, back when I was a serious pianist, which was decades ago, your submission to a teacher, a tradition, a school, yeah. like the music yeah. is non-negotiable. Like if that's not your first step, there will be no second step. And so in other words, like you need to check your ego. I mean, to put it in you know, simplistic terms, you need to check your ego as a precondition of doing anything useful. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying this like it's a bad thing, but I'm just interested in the, the fact that uh, scientific endeavor or scientific ascetism, like a religious ascetism, demands submission above all. Yeah. You know, the word ascesis, where we get the word uh, ascetic or asceticism, is famously Sloterdijk tells us that it means exercise, right? And But exercise in terms of, in the sense of practice, the way we've discussed practice, and practice is an act right. of submission. You are submitting yes, yourself absolutely. to some process that will mm -hmm. transform you. And I think that if that's how we want to, and this would be a very Sloterdijkian way of defining religion and spirituality, but if we settle for that, if we embrace that definition of what ascesis means, then modern neuroscience is absolutely a form or can occasion a form of ascetic practice. And that's no less religious than any other. Science presents itself as revelation in precisely the same sense that the Upanishads or the Bible present themselves as revelation. Science, according to the ideological way of making science preeminent in our in our in our apprehension of reality in that in that sense science is is something that's doing something it's something that's revealing itself reality to us the and that doesn't mean that it's not yeah. like i'm not there's a caricaturesque way of of understanding that like science says or follow the science well follow the, right. follow the process like I, of course sapolsky doesn't believe that social and political and other factors don't come in and, and screw science up sometimes. He doesn't believe that. He's not a Reddit, you know, atheist. But mm. he is someone who believes that the process practiced in a state of ascetic purity does reveal reality to us in with such force that the only strategy that makes sense in the face of such revelation is absolute submission. 
So yep. that is ascetic. And I guess somebody might say, well, the difference is that science is actually revealing the truth, whereas the Upanishads in the Bible is just <laughs> revealing nothing, really. But right. that's only from the point of view of science. That's only right. from the point of view of that ascetic tradition. So yeah. all we yeah. have- The, things, in, to, the yeah. things to which science addresses itself are not the same things as the things that the Upanishads address And themselves. of course, and, and again, to go back to the agency thing, science- assumes axiomatically that agency doesn't exist, even though it can't ever think any thought without it. Well, that is an axiomatic thought. That's not something that science could ever demonstrate. You can always say that reality supersedes the material such that agency is more real than the material. That's just as valid a proposition as what Sapolsky would offer, which is that agency is just an illusion. The thing is that there's no reason why something couldn't be both a real and true, and second, be uh, unaccountable, impossible to demonstrate, impossible to account for. So Mm. the the idea that those two are mutually exclusive is a scientific axiom. It's not something you could prove. So therefore, Mm. it makes just as much sense to say that agency is primordial and comes before everything as it is to say that agency is just an illusion at the end of the process, a kind of epiphenomenon. And of course, that's the big debate between materialism and idealism. It's just like, what do you choose as an axiom? What do you choose to decide is real? And it's an ethical decision, I think, which is why I reject mm, materialism. Mm, <laughs> yeah. and, but I also reject idealism, for the record. <laughs> but, yeah. I want to jump back a step and think about improvisation and flow states and so on, what we were talking about before. You know, we're talking about a certain slippage between a scientific sort of frame and something that feels more religious, which sounds, if you're a scientist, I'm sure it sounds like we're just trying to be gratuitously insulting, but we're not, we're not. We're trying to think of like deep structural connections between these different practices, Mm -hmm. different practices of truth. Yeah, I like that. And you got to respect science as a practice of truth, uh, even if you disagree with a lot of the warrants of a lot of scientific thinking, particularly as, you know, sort of applies to religion or art or things that it doesn't explain terribly well. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that when people start talking about, for example, something that lands you squarely back in that territory where it's not me that's playing the music, the music's playing through me. Or there's no distinction between you and the music or whatever, however you want to- However you want to verbalize it. It's going to be some poetic way of saying it because concepts are precisely the opposite of that state, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, you know, there are scientific doors that open into that space. You can go into that space of durée through a scientific door. And so Mihai Sixcent Mihai, the- psychologist, I think an experimental psychologist who coined the term flow state and has written a bunch about flow. It's funny, I became really fascinated with this because I'm just interested in durée generally. And in an earlier stage of life, I had a, um, like a few years ago, I had a bunch of graduate students read some of, maybe all of Sikh Mihai's flow. Mm. And they hated it. They fucking hated it. Particularly one student, Masha. Oh my God, she hated it. And kind of <laughs> rightly so, because it's written in a kind of a pop psych way that's a little off-putting. The ideas are really interesting about, you know, flow states and and what they are and what they allow people to do. But 
One thing that Masha particularly pointed out, and I think she was quite right about this, is that it was one of those books that starts off saying like, I'm going to tell you about some scientific findings about the way the human mind works, but it can't quite keep itself from sneaking over into the, let me tell you how to live your life territory. Yeah. yeah. That it becomes normative in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes uh, and, ethical and, or normative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you can kind of feel, and once you start dabbling in this terrain, it's almost impossible not to start sounding like some kind of priest or minister or mm -hmm. guru. At least an ethicist. Somebody who's got the answer. Right, right. And I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. I just notice like there's this territory. This It's a zone, a capital Z zone. So it changes every time you visit and you can't live there. You can only visit, you know, and it's dangerous, but it's also wondrous and strange. And who the fuck really knows what it is? Yeah. But there's any number of doors that we can get into it. And when we're there... We can understand it from a limited perspective, whatever the perspective is of that way we found into it. But once we're there, it seems as if we cannot help ourselves in touching on matters of ultimate concern. Yeah, right, right. And that's what, that's the kind of bait and switch of, of modern scientific or scientistic discourse is that it feigns skirting, avoiding those issues. But the minute science is vulgarized to a degree where it becomes relevant to people, <laughs> it touches on those ultimate concerns. For any scientific theory to become relevant, even to the scientists who came up with it, for it to be relevant to him in his life outside of his or her scientific work, at some level, it needs to touch on ultimate concern. This is a term from Paul Tillich that we've used before. It's, it's basically it's how Tillich defined religion. Religion is discourse dealing with ultimate concern. And these the ultimate concern, love, life, death, you know, the big, big question mark slash themes of any human existence. And, and agency. And I agency. would throw into that mix, like who's who's driving this bus? Yeah, and th therefore, and necessarily, I think um, guilt or damnation and redemption—all these these big uh, scary words that um, you'll find in one form or another in every religious tradition—is that there's a way to fuck this up, and there's a way yeah. to make this work. And mm. your decisions, your choices matter. This is as true in Buddhism as it is in Christianity or Judaism or Islam or any other religion. There's a way to live and we're trying to figure out how to live. And so that's what makes something relevant in life. And so science has to go there, but it keeps pretending it's not going there because if it were to say that this is where things become important, then it, it's a serious challenge to the square one assumption that that entire stratum doesn't even exist. <laughs> it's pure, right. purely epiphenomenal. Yeah. But it's, again, it's very close in, that, in doing that and making that move. It's very close to ancient ascetic practices or the practices of modern, some of the modern sadhu schools in India, which are very, very, very close to... Uh, to that and saying that there's that annihilation is the key to extinguish existence or to extinguish experience is basically what both these 
ancient schools, ascetic schools are asking us to do, and also to a certain degree, I would say, what modern scientific schools are asking us to do as well. It's very close. And in, for, in fact, right. I've, I don't know anything about it. And I want to know more about Indian philosophy because I know how rich it is and how influential it was on Western philosophy. But I believe that there were materialist schools in ancient India that were just as ascetic and religious as the alternative. And in fact, if you read um, the very first materialists in the West, people like, um, what is his name? Uh, Lucretius, is that his name? <laughs> the, the, the first atomists, you know, Lucretius and, uh, and Epictetus, I believe. If you read the Greek materialists, the atomists, you'll find that they're just as spiritual, <laughs> if you want to, you know, and as concerned with ultimate concerns as any of the other philosophers. It's like you can't get away from ultimate concern, right? That's yeah. what makes them ultimate. <laughs> but, you know, I also don't want to get into a bag where I'm going to just one-sidedly affirm freedom of choice or free will, because when we enter that zone through whichever door, it's not like you get to the zone and you realize the gnosis is that free will's a thing, because it's more complicated than that, I think. Oh, yeah. But to get back to thinking about music performance, which is the most accessible way I have of, of thinking about this stuff. Okay, think about that moment where in a performance, you're just one with the music. The, the music's playing through me or however we want to express it. Who's driving the bus? Am I making choices about the music? Not exactly. You know, if I were writing an analysis of a recorded performance by a great pianist, which I dabbled in, I've got an unpublished piece that I wrote, which maybe I'll give that to the patrons someday, because I don't think I'll ever publish it. They might find it interesting. Yeah, um, sure. You know, I was analyzing very closely a Horvitz recording of a Mozart sonata, but the problem with the entire assumption of that analysis is that Horvitz is making conscious decisions about how he's going to wait this chord versus that chord or this moment versus that moment. But if I think back to my own experiences of playing music from inside a flow state, am I choosing yeah. to wait a chord like this or like that? Who's the me yeah, yeah. that's doing any of this? Because it's not the same, it's an I that's doing it, but it's not an I in the same sense that like I am consciously saying these words that are coming out of my mouth right now. And yeah. so... It, I'm not exactly making choices, but I'm not not making choices either. It's sort of like, well, kind of the music is making choice. The total situation of which I am a part is deciding how it's going to go. In a way, it's autotelic. And that kind of makes rubbish of any kind of simple distinction between predetermination and free will. Yeah, but that's, that's a great point. And that's an important point because people talk about free will... Uh, often without taking into account the very rich history of that idea in Western philosophy and religion. Aside from Augustine, there aren't many people who see free will as simply the freedom to make a choice between A, B, and C. That's not what free will means. It's certainly not what's implied in Plato, what you'll find in the church fathers, just sticking to the Christian tradition, what you'll find even in Aquinas, where there, what they understand as free will is the freedom 
of the human to turn itself towards the divine and how that movement, that turning towards the divine or the good as Plato would call it, is not accountable on purely causal terms. The good is in itself a causal. It's not necessary. Mm. It's gratuitous. It's what, you know, where we get the word grace, it comes from outside. And the turning of the human being to that has to be described in terms of free choice. It's a gratuitous event. Otherwise, we'd just be a bunch of ping pong, uh, not ping pong ball, billiard balls striking one another. The event of the good in Plato is what occasions the whole machinery of existence, but also allows that whole machinery to transcend mere mechanics. Like a good uh, poetic exploration of that is uh, Nina Simone's song, Feeling Good. I know she didn't write that song. It's a cover she did. Do you know who wrote Feeling Good? I think it's from a musical, uh, one of those forgotten musicals. But in that song, she's, okay, so the song's called Feeling Good. So if you want to understand good here as more than just I'm feeling pleasure, but feeling the good in the platonic sense, I'm feeling goodness itself. Yeah. Uh, then you read the lyrics. All of her examples are things that we would describe as not free at all. Birds flying high, sun in the sky, breeze drifting on by, fish in the sea, the river running free, the blossom on the tree you know, scent on the pine, the dragonfly out in the sun, the butterflies all having fun, sleep in peace when day is, all of these are examples of things that in, from a purely deterministic perspective, we would describe as entirely automatic completely determined by causes. Like the butterflies aren't choosing to fly around. They're just being what they are. And at the end, she says, freedom is mine, right? So all of these things add up to her in this song, add up to freedom, but it's not the type of freedom, not a rationalistic freedom, the, the option to choose arbitrarily between different courses of action, but rather the gift of being what you are, of being in that flow state, and that in itself being accountable, the, the goodness of that state being accountable only in terms of something we must call freedom because it's not causal, right? I get, I, I'm trying to explain it, but that to me is closer to what someone like, I don't know, Origin, uh, or uh, to pick a name out of a hat, or some of the early theologians would have meant by free will. It's not the Augustinian kind of lame choosing, making the right choice. Like you're given a bunch of boxes, and inside one of these boxes is your salvation, the others contain your damnation, and you're asked to just choose arbitrarily one, and hopefully you'll choose the right one. So we were originally going to talk about something completely different on this show, on this particular episode. Let's go there. Yeah. Yeah. So JF is on a shoot and his schedule for the next month is pretty complex. And we're taking a little bit of a break. We're going to take off a couple of shows, but we wanted to get one last show in the can. And because the Green Knight episode was a stinker and not releasable. Mm. 
we thought we would take the opportunity for like the one day that JF is back in Vanier to record an episode and it had to be something that would require no preparation whatsoever. And so the original idea was, hey, let's do an I Ching reading and uh, we'll ask the I Ching a question and we can discuss the divination, like how we think through that divination. Uh, however, I always feel that it's a good idea to show a little respect to nice Mr. Ching. And so I did a reading yesterday asking the I Ching how it would feel for us to pursue this course of action. And the I Ching said, and I paraphrase, fuck no. <laughs> we got fuck no, stern letter to follow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, we got hexagram 23 moving line one, which yeah. is, uh, I mean, hexagram 23 is n notoriously the worst. Like it's like getting the tower card yeah. in the, in, in, it's in the worse than the tower card. No, it's just really bad. Actually, yeah. it's a plot point early in Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus where somebody gets hexagram 23 and realizes that the situation he's a part of is really, really dangerous. So call me superstitious, but I felt like, yeah, that seems like a pretty unequivocal no. And so then I asked a follow-up question. So what do you suggest we do instead? And it gave me hexagram 15, modesty, with the moving lines four and six, which creates a secondary hexagram, hexagram 56, the wanderer. That's the one I always get, the wanderer. <laughs> I always get the Me water. too. Yeah, you too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, I once, uh, ages ago when I was still uh, much more of a mag magical practitioner than I am now, my magical practice has dwindled pretty much to just meditation, if you even want to call that magical, and reading the I Ching and occasionally the tarot. But back when I was doing a little bit more, I remember asking the I Ching, like, basically, what is the the advice to someone on the magical path. And I got Hex 56, oh, the Wanderer. And sense. the Wanderer is, the is to me the image of the magician in the I Ching. Stranger in a strange land. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But a very particular vision of the magician, it's uh, Votan in his, the form that he takes in Siegfried, for example, of uh, the Wagner's Ring Tetralogy, where, and this is, comes from Germanic myth, the idea is that Votan taught people courtesy. He taught them hospitality because he would visit these lonely farms scattered, dotted throughout the Scandinavian coast. He would visit them in the person of a road-weary traveler with a, yeah. a dusty gray cloak and a big hat with a wide brim pulled down, of course, over Gandalf. one eye. Gandalf. Gandalf exactly. is basically just, um, you know, he's, he's entirely based on, on Votan or Odin. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea is that when you get a traveler at your door, you should have at the back of your mind, this could possibly be Votan. This could be a god, yeah. Yeah, so better yeah. be nice, right? Show some yeah. hospitality. So this is a, the, the idea that, you know, he goes around showing people how to be hospitable. But that's a cool idea. I've always liked that. And I love the scene in Wagner's Siegfried where Votan in his guise as the wanderer visits the hovel of the malignant dwarf Mime and engages in a game of riddles with him. Yeah. It's very, 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 very Germanic. I always thought that was a terrific 
image for what it is you're doing when you're doing magic. You're out on the road. You're not on your turf. Yeah. You're, I mean, I don't care how knowledgeable you are, how many esoteric tomes you have read and how many workings you've done. To some extent, this is just, it's not your turf. Like yeah. the, the other world is, you can't build a nice little cottage there no, and so live you there forever. You can visit zones, as we say, but you can't stay there. Right. So Exactly. But the magician is somebody who spends a lot of time in zones, yeah. traversing zones. Mm -hmm. And to me, the hexagram 56 is advice on how to be the kind of person who successfully navigate zones. Yeah. And so I'll read a little bit from the Wilhelm Baines translation. So the symbolism of this hexagram is above, Lee, the clinging, fire, and below, Ken, keeping still, mountain. So we have fire over the mountain. Here we read, the mountain, Ken, stands still. Above it, the fire, Lee, flames up and does not tarry. Therefore, the two trigrams do not stay together. Strange lands and separation are the wanderer's lot. And then the judgment reads, the wanderer. Success through smallness. Perseverance brings good fortune to the wanderer. And then the commentary on that. When a man is a wanderer and stranger, he should not be gruff nor overbearing. He has no large circle of acquaintances. Therefore, he should not give himself airs. He must be cautious and reserved. In this way, he protects himself from evil. If he is obliging towards others, he wins success. A wanderer has no fixed abode. His home is the road. Therefore, he must take care to remain upright and steadfast, so that he sojourns only in the proper places, associating only with good people. Then he has good fortune and can go his way unmolested. And the lines, because in the I Ching, you'll get a little bit of text for each line in the hexagram. So you'll have six little texts that, and often they kind of tell a story. And I really like the story of the wanderer, because in the first line, he's, I can't remember how it goes, but he's wandering around, he comes to an inn, he finds a, a servant, and then in the next line, he he sets fire to the inn, or someone sets fire to the inn. He loses a servant. He moves on. It's just like this idea of of how, as a wanderer, you can never, um, I, I, you know, the image that comes to me is Alice in the Lewis Carroll books. Alice is the ultimate wanderer. So whenever Alice meets a character uh, in Wonderland, which is the zone of zones, I think in a way. Mm. She has to learn the language of this person. She can't rely on her language. She can't rely on the history of England that her tutor is reading her at the beginning. She's, she, the rules in these places are to be discovered. They are imminent to the place themselves. So she has to adapt herself to each person she meets and figure out what they mean when they use certain words, what the rules are in this place, and then that allows her to move on to the next place. And that's kind of what magic's all about, which is why like esoteric tomes only take you so far because esoteric tomes are all kind of snapshots of something in movement, something that's ever changing, mm. so that when you're in a zone, you need to figure out what the rules are now, what what the what yeah. the imminent yeah, what the laws are of this place at this particular moment. And those laws are determined by what's happening, but also determine what's happening. It's very strange. But like, so the way of the wanderer, and th this is something, it sounds very kind of uh, wacky and, and weird, but it's just the state you're in when you're traveling. 
alone yeah. and meeting people. You you don't know the customs. You don't know what's you have to adapt. You have to discover and you have to remain open to what comes your way and be courteous. But also I would add, like Odin, you also have to expect hospitality. You have to expect that the people or creatures or daimons you meet along the way owe you hospitality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the moral core. Like that's what makes it possible to wander in these places is that they too are beholden to the law, to, to some transcendent law of hospitality that allows zones to connect or people to meet. And um, yeah, I, I've gotten that hexagram every time I've asked about big abstract questions like, what's my purpose in life? You know, because I've been a bit of a <laughs> dilettante. I've gone all over the place. And sometimes I kind of panic and go, why? I was so interested in that. And now I'm interested in this. And I feel like I'm just flaky. Uh, and I always get the wanderer. It's just like, it's just your lot in life, JF. You're just going to be this way. So just make that your thing, you know, just to to be wandering, um, well, mentally well, wandering. And, and this kind of brings it to the way that I read this reading, both the modesty hexagram, which we haven't even talked about yet, or the wanderer hexagram, which is the secondary uh, one derivative of the first, mm-hmm. which is, it seemed to me that what this advice was from the I Ching, it was very um, reflexive. This is about the podcast, because what we're describing is weird studies. The podcast is itself, to me, the best example I can imagine of the the business of the wanderer as laid out in the I Ching, exactly what we're talking about here. And so, you know, what you were just saying, well, I've always been, you say a dilettante, I say a polymath. Thank you. Uh, you've just got a endless, endlessly fertile, active mind, and you're always going to be a little bit bored to be staying in one place for yeah, too long. Apparently, right? yeah. And I'm kind of the same way. I'm similar, and you and I are similar in a lot of ways. Of course, we're different as well. But like, I can't help but feel that weird studies is the concrete instantiation of that character tendency in both of us. Yeah, and that is weird studies is itself the wanderer on the path. Yeah, and what this uh, advice is is just to think about the podcast. So actually, you know, it's funny the whole first part of this conversation. I was thinking like, okay, we're going to angle towards a kind of uh, reflexive discussion about like, what is it to podcast? What are, what are we doing in podcasting? And I thought we were getting there because we were talking about improvisation and, and flow and so on. And to me, what we are doing in Weird Studies, if you say, what is it in itself? I would say it is an improvisatory artwork that we create yeah. every couple of weeks for our listeners. I do think of it as an artwork. I didn't when we started. Uh, you yeah. said you did think of it that way, and I was somewhat surprised, and I didn't know what I thought of that. But over time, I've come to really accept it. It's like it's a kind of improvisational art. Yeah. Um, and so the first part, thinking about durée and the different doors into durée, and you know, thinking of that as a zone that we visit and inhabit and wander our way through, uh, maybe it is actually sort of connecting up somehow. Maybe the first part of this conversation does actually set up the second part. But to me, what we're doing is like, I wouldn't want to do this every week or even every year because self-reflexive stuff can get very much, you can really get up your own ass just doing self-reflexive stuff. But every now and then, like for example, at the beginning of a new academic year, which is when it is right now, as time we're recording this is August 19th, and we are only a few days away from the beginning of the new academic term here at IU. 
which feels all the weight here because it's the first time that I will, that any of us will be teaching or learning face-to-face, I mean, masked, but still, since March of 2020. Hmm. And that adds to the already momentous feel that obtains every time there's a new academic year. I always go around telling people, happy new year in late right. August, because it is. For me, this is much more the new year than the beginning of January is. Yeah, It kind of feels like an auspicious time to maybe take a you know, stop, take a look back and think about our lives on the road. And thinking yeah. about uh, weird studies itself as a kind of wanderer on the road is not a bad way to begin. I agree. I, the fact that we're taking a, a short break here is makes it all the more... Um uh, apropos, I guess. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I never wanted to do a podcast. In fact, I actively wanted to not podcast until you came up with the idea of doing a podcast. Uh, because we were having these exchanges, these email exchanges, this correspondence that got pretty deep and was, was uh, suddenly it seemed like, yeah, the only way forward is to do a podcast. My, some of my reluctance had to do with doubt as to my own ability to speak properly in public, because it's something that, although I loved talking, I loved public speaking when I was a student and I got the chance occasionally to present things. I always thought that I was okay at it, and I th- I thought that I just I had lost that 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 muscle had atrophied completely, so I was doubtful as to whether I could be any good on a podcast. And secondly, I believed something, and I still kind of believe this. I believed something that uh, who was it? I can't remember his name. That uh, John David Ebert, who is a an interesting independent scholar in his own right. The John David Ebert once wrote, it's "Like all this podcasting means nothing." Nothing means anything until it's written down. This is just a lot of noise. And I think that thinking about the podcast, once I'd agreed to do it, thinking about it in terms of a kind of artwork, little radio plays we're making every two weeks, allowed me to believe that what we do would be different from what I was hearing a lot of the time, which is just a lot of interviewing and and, uh, exchanging of opinions and that sort of thing, which I wasn't interested in. In fact... Me neither. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, whenever that's one of the reasons we didn't release the Green Knight, uh, the conversation sounded like an exchange of opinions, an exchange of right. views, and or or <laughs> even worse, we we didn't even disagree. We agreed on our views, so we were just kind of pontificating. <laughs> I fucking enjoying hate, the yeah. smell of our own farts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. While social distancing. Um, (laughs) Um, this is a socially distanced this is guests we're in two different countries yeah exactly so uh yeah and i still believe that i think that that it's because i made myself think of it in those terms uh as radio plays as opposed to interviews that i was able to like say okay yeah let's do this let's make this work so it was kind of a yeah it's kind of a defensive strategy on my part to look at it that way. Uh, And also, if I say I'm an artist, then I can say all kinds of crazy shit and I'm just doing art. (laughs) You know, I'm not committed to any particular, it was, yeah, it was a defensive way of making it work for me. But now, okay, so we've been doing this for what now, three and a half years? Yeah. Yeah. So 106 episodes with this this one. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be number 106. Yeah. I never thought 
well, I never, I, I never thought we wouldn't get here, but it never occurred to me to uh, believe that we'd get to this many shows. Uh, neither yeah. of us knew where it was going to go at the beginning. And what I've discovered is that, yeah, it is the instantiation of wandering. I would put it on a level, let's say, with, with the Alice books. <laughs> In fact, I, I think if you were to think of which aesthetic form Weird Studies adheres to, I would, something like the Odyssey or the Alice books, you know, it, it feels like one of those to me. Like, at least that's how it feels from the inside, from my perspective. And I think you'll agree is that it feels like we're going into these strange places. We don't really know what we're going to meet. Like for f one thing that people need to know. Not, not putting ourselves on the level of Lewis Carroll or whatever. Just No, it's just participating uh, in that form. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a really shitty version of Lewis Carroll and Homer. <laughs> yes, well, maybe maybe we're equal with Homer, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, 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 what was I going to say? The, um, oh, I'm sorry. One thing that's interesting, if we're going to go meta, is that we don't talk before we record. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the topic. We don't discuss what we're going to do, what we're going to say until we're recording. So there's literally no prep that goes into the shows. If by prep, we mean like the two of us planning things out. Yeah. What we are you going to say? At, yeah. Oh, well, when you say that, I'll say that. Yeah. yeah or we tried I'll, that and it totally didn't work. I'll be focusing on that. We tried that with the first show and we quickly abandoned that. So uh, like if we choose to do something on a novel... Uh, when we start recording, I have no idea where Phil wants to go with it. I have no idea how he interpreted this book. or So that it's, it is very much a discovery in that way. So it's like we're two wanderers and we're each other's stranger in a certain sense mm. every two weeks. and Or every week if we include the Patreon extras. So I think you're right. I think this idea of imposed, willful, kind of voluntary discomfort is what generates a lot of the material on the show. That we never, mm. we're never comfortable. We never know where we're going. And that, I think, is part of why I think it works for, for the two of us, at least. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody out there. Apparently, enough people like it for us to continue. But Yay. yeah, yeah. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to us. So I've said a moment ago that I think of this as an artwork of a sort. But it's also, I mean, I'm also a professional scholar. And... I think of it also as scholarly work. No. And I find myself at the, in the position, it feels like a rather unusual position. I am now in my 50s. I am officially mid-career. I have tenure. I have, you know, a big old book out on Oxford University Press that I published, uh, I don't know, what, eight years ago? Boy, time flies. Seven? Seven, eight years ago, something like that. 2014, uh, right? 13. Oh, 13. Okay. Yeah. Um, dig sounded music and hip culture. And I'm not interested in writing more books exactly like that. I'm glad I did write it. And it sort of shows what I can do as a historical researcher, as a thinker on post-war American intellectual and cultural history. Proud of what I accomplished, but at the same time, the limits of that book or the kind of project it represents become more clear to me over time, I find myself in mid-career realizing that in a lot of ways, what my career has represented or my output has represented up to this point has a lot more to do with serial para-academic projects than with the kinds of things that fit 
between hardcovers in a university library somewhere. Mm -hmm. yeah, like the normal thing, if you're a scholar, is you do your scholarship, you research, and you write, and you write in recognizable genres that will end up being part of a permanent record. So maybe you want to write an article that will be published in the Journal of the American Musicological Society or representations or what have you. And universities maintain institutional subscriptions to those major journals. And I can publish, like, for example, Taboo. We did an article on Taboo, which was published in 2008, 2009 in representations. Now, just correct have, you said an article, you meant an episode. Just to avoid the annoyance of, of hearing Did I that. say episode? You said we, we did an article on Taboo. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did an episode on Taboo. Uh, okay, so like, you know, contrast the episode on Taboo with the article itself. Like, long after I'm dead, assuming that the institutions of academia, as they are now, continue in some form or other, that there will continue to be research libraries, and those libraries will continue to shelve the complete runs of major 20th and 21st century periodicals, such as representations. An interesting feel, question. An interesting. Uh, it is an interesting yeah. <laughs> question, but like, but I have a great deal more certainty of the permanence of that kind of expression than I do the continued existence of Dial M for Musicology, the blog that I started in 2006 and concluded in 2018 upon the launch of this show or this show, which started in 2018 and continues. I don't know how yeah. those things are going to be preserved. And I kind of doubt there's any real way they can be in the long run, but I don't know. And I have to recognize a possibility that as opposed to these monuments to fixity, essays appearing in major journals or academic monographs like my book, Dig, that will sit on university shelves for as long as there are university library shelves. I have no such assumption of fixity, of a durable monument to my work in the form of weird studies. And that feels like a lot of what I'm doing, of what I'm saying, that at the end of my life, once I'm gone, everything I thought and everything I said was written on the wind, and it'll just be gone. And... Sometimes that is a melancholy reflection, though, at this point, I'm going to tell you, I'm pretty much okay with that. But uh, I was getting back to your friend, uh, Roger Ebert. Uh, Roger Ebert. <laughs> yes, the famous movie reviewer. <laughs> Film critic, yeah. Yeah. What he was saying is like, podcasts ain't shit. You know, you, you don't have anything until you've written something down. And I take him to be saying something like what I've just said. Yeah. So that is a fairly major stumbling block to thinking of a podcast like Weird Studies as a work of scholarship in the way that I can think of my articles and my book and so on as works of scholarship. It makes it difficult on a practical scale. It makes it difficult for a campus promotion and tenure committee to decide whether to nominate you to the rank of full professor. I am a tenured, but I am still an associate professor, which is sort of like being a colonel. Being a full professor is like being a general. I don't know if I'm ever going to get there because it depends very much on how people interpret what kind of academic genre or what kind of academic work, what kind of intellectual labor something like a podcast represents. Mm. And uh, one way of rephrasing what I just said 
is that a podcast is intellectual work on the model of the wanderer. Yeah. Yeah. And the wanderer can expect to have like a statue erected yeah. in his honor necessarily. It could happen. It has happened. But for all that, that I just said that, I know that this podcast is beginning to have some kind of effect in the world of academia because I did an ego search on Google Scholar recently, just putting weird studies and like quotation marks. So you get like that particular exact phrase, weird studies. And there's, uh, there's an article that somebody's published in a religion study of religion journal that uses our concept of zones. So that's cool. But I've also noticed one or two pieces of published scholarship talking about weird studies as if that's an actual thing that exists. Oh, yeah. One that says like, oh, in the vernacular of weird studies and not citing the podcast, which doesn't bother me, but just sort of like, it's almost as if the very coinage weird studies, which I basically invented that. Yeah. I mean, you know. As far as I know, I, yeah. I, yeah. There was just nobody using that in 2015 when I first sort of started using that term sort of as a joke. It's not really my coinage anymore. It's just entered the vernacular. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're doing something. Yeah, we're doing something. There's some and, effect. And, and I mean, I, I think it's safe to uh, to bring it up now. I don't see why we would keep it under wraps uh, any longer mm. that we're actually working on a weird studies book. I don't know how That's much right. we want to talk about it, but it, there is a... Uh, we could say where, we can say who it's being published by. Yeah. Because... Why not? Strange Attractor. Yeah. Strange my, Attractor. My, fav my favorite small press. I'm so well, happy. Well, I remember at the very beginning we said we were talking about Strange Attractor and how both of us w would like to be published by them. So uh, it, that feels like a, like a milestone. And, and that book, will, will, we'll see where that book goes. But um, that's certainly you know, a brick in the wall of scholarly um, knowledge. Yes. That, uh, that could sit on a shelf someday. Exactly. But but at the same time, and we were explicit about this with Jamie and Mark when we were talking about, uh, when we were pitching this book, it's not just the show. I mean, a book is a book. It's not just like the show by other means. No, so of course. That you and I co-author is going to be a very different kind of thing. It's a bounded whole, whereas Weird Studies, the podcast, is not a bounded whole until yeah. we give up. Until, yeah. <laughs> until we stop or die or something. It's ever renewed. It's just, it's the walking of the road. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. At the same time, I think there's also something to be said for uh, what Weird Studies is part of. There's a kind mm -hmm. of a, there's a, a movement. Like the reason why people are using the, the phrase or the term Weird Studies unconnected to our show is that there's a lot of people writing in this vein, working it's in true. this vein these days. It's uh, true. Of it's course, a zeitgeist. Yeah. Like we weren't the founders of that. I mean, Eric Davis and many others preceded us. Uh, Michael Garfield. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to forget names. So I'll stop listing them off, but there are a whole bunch of people working in this area. And a lot of that is happening through podcasts. A lot of yes. that is happening in this medium. So while, yeah, there might never be a day where you'll find like you know, USB keys, or I don't know what format it'll be of weird studies on a shelf somewhere in a library, although that's not, you know, out of the realm of the possible. I think that anyone who wants to write the intellectual history of our times and the future and decides to look at 
things which at that time, in our time, were difficult to think, were fringe or, or, or uh, yeah, like outlying concepts. We'll have to recognize the existence of this community, you know, what we call the weirdosphere, right. which... I think that is part of the history. Um, yeah, at I, least, agree. I agree. Well, we'll see where things go. You know, I'm just potentially part of a history. I of mean, I can't imagine history. that history. I can't imagine that history of like the weird turn in American letters, which I feel pretty comfortable in saying there is some kind of turn in American arts and letters. The turn, turn. Yeah, not not because of us and not even with any of the major figures knowing who we are, but just like there is some kind of zeitgeisty thing like. Yeah, the way that the nuts and bolts, like, let's just take UFOs, for example, okay? Uh, the nuts and bolts theory of UFO phenomena was almost universally accepted, embraced you know, adhered to until the last five or six years. Like Daimonic yeah. Reality, Patrick Harper's Daimonic Reality, which I was published in the 80s, um, and even like Jacques Vallée and, and uh, even John Keel, like their way of looking at things was really the minority view. And now it seems that thinking imaginally, thinking in terms of daimonic realities, of the reality of, of how the imagination interacts or interfaces with physical reality, that, those sorts of ideas have become quite mainstream now, insofar as such ideas ever become mainstream, in a way that I think is entirely due to whatever movement we've ended up being part of. That's a huge change. That's a huge change in how we think in our society. Something could be unreal and still matter. Like yeah. sleep paralysis, the phenomenology of sleep paralysis remains important whether or not you believe there's actually a little demon causing it. The, the triumph of phenomenology in the 21st century, I think is something that will be talking about. Now that sounds weird because I'm not talking about phenomenology like Husserl and Heidegger. But the importance and the validity of discussions pertaining to the immediate experience, to aesthetic experience itself, I think it's something you're finding all over the place now. It's an object-oriented ori object ontology. The whole kind of speculative realism scene really kind of deals with that question. And that's, that's a big change in the way we think. And I think Weird Studies is a part of that. Yeah. And don't want to oversell that and say that we're leading the charge or we well, invented no. this shit. We're a uh, a hand puppet for the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist yeah. has its hand like up our ass. Oh, I think I, I like. I was going to say I prefer to think myself as a string puppet, but <laughs> I don't like. Less I don't like. It's less demeaning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. String puppets, a marionette. But yeah, it's yeah. so. Here's a question. I do think that there is something about the medium of the podcast that has made it the preferred instrument of investigation for that turn, that weird zone that we're all kind of finding ourselves stumbling into. Global mm -hmm. weirding, you know, yeah. is like suddenly realizing that shit is weird. Yeah. I, I just get, you know, so yeah. like, and we've sort of established, I think to our satisfaction at any rate, that like anybody who wanted to write a history of that, the weird turn in America, 2015 to 2025 or something like that. Imagine some dry academic monograph in the future. You're quite right to say that 
any competent attempt to write that will have to, you know, they'll have to listen to all of Eric's podcasts and they'll have to listen to Rune Soup and they'll have to listen to Connor Habib and they'll have to listen to us and so on and so on and so on. Right. Yeah. Um, what is it about the podcast medium that makes it the preferred vessel for that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Can you think of any stronger proof of concept of McLuhan's idea of a transition into acoustic space than that? I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's the retrieval of dialogue, first of all. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I, we just did a, an episode with Tamler, Tamler Summers of Very Bad Wizards, the co-host of Very Bad Wizards with uh, Dave Pizarro. And it was a great conversation we had with on Twin Peaks. And they, too, I think, should be included in this movement, even though they tend to not Absolutely. delve as, into as weird. Sometimes they do. Um, and I love it when they do. Um, and I know Tamler is really into that stuff. Uh, Dave seems to be a little bit more skeptical point being that the uh, retrieval of the dialogue as a form, you know, because this is the weird thing. Dialogue has always been a big part of philosophy, right? I mean, Hume wrote in dialogues. A lot of modern philosophers have used the dialogue form. Even if you think of something like a modern book like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is essentially a dialogue. And this all goes back to Plato's dialogues. But Plato's dialogues were really an innovation but the idea is that Plato's dialogues reflected the way philosophy was done at that time, which was, you know, the reason we called Aristotle and his followers the peripatetics is because they walked around and talked a lot. They talked. Talking was the, the medium of philosophy. And that right. could, obviously got lost with time. Not that philosophical yeah. discussions stopped happening, but they stopped being the place where philosophy happens. Philosophy happened right. when you wrote. And I think that that's changing. I think that the mm. dialogue is coming back, nice. not just the dialogue form as a literary form, but the practice of uh, of dialogue Indeed. and of of, yeah. of wandering, right? It's because we've connected yeah. in our show. We've connected discussions with walking often. Like our, our, I think my favorite episode like of our ours, Green Mountains yeah, Walking episode. My favorite yeah. ever episode of ours. Like that's an episode that I. It's like a place I can go to in my mind. I love being there. I don't remember everything we said, but the feeling of that episode to me yeah, really captured. Yeah, exactly what you mean. Yeah, exactly. And for some reason, I keep imagining that we recorded that episode. While taking, remember we took a walk across Vanier when you came down. Yeah. I've, I link. I, uh, I think it's because we talked about it in the episode. So I, I've I've connected yeah. those events. Oh, um, I get that. The validity of the podcast as a way to explore ideas. I think that a little bit. I think that John David Ebert's denigration of the podcast is reflective of a print culture that's on its way out in a certain sense, mm. which is why I think that podcasts, both the podcasts of the future and the podcasts that are happening now and that have happened up to this point in history will be more relevant than we think maybe in the future if this shift into the acoustic continues to unfold. Nice. Yeah. It's, this is going to be extremely pompous, but I am going to quote myself. I'm going to read from an article that I wrote, my own golden words, simply because it's a bit more efficient. I will just... Go save like five minutes instead of stumbling around trying to paraphrase myself. I'm just going to read it. I absolve last... you. I absolve. I give you absolution even before you commit the. Thank the sin. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, so I wrote an essay that appeared in the Journal of Musicological Research called "What Was Blogging." 
Oh yeah, that's and I was good asked, one. and I was asked to write this an essay review on blogging, and basically wrote like you know at the time it was published, which was in 2019, blogging kind of doesn't exist anymore, at least not in the sense that it did in the aughts when I started Dial M. Now there's an interesting, I mean, you've mentioned McLuhan and one of the most valuable things to learn from McLuhan is something you've mentioned on our McLuhan show is that for McLuhan, nothing stays gone. Anything can be retrieved. And I feel like blogging is being retrieved on a new footing in a di very different way in like Substack. All of a sudden, yeah, exactly. a ass personal essays are back. So this piece that I wrote in 2019 is already obsolete from a certain point of view, but I say something at the end that I rather like. I feel like uh, it gets at a question, which is like, what's in it for you to do a podcast or to keep a blog or Substack or a YouTube channel? What are the affordances of doing such a thing? And this is the question that we're considering right now. What are the affordances for intellectual work generally and intellectual work in the weirdosphere in particular? that uh, we get from podcasting. So at the end of this piece, I want to kind of think about that. What do we get out of doing that? What do I, what have I gotten out of doing this when you consider that I've been doing online para-academic projects consistently since 2006? So in the last page, I talk a little bit about Dial M for Musicology, my old blog. And I write, who knows, maybe I'll return to some of what I wrote in all those posts and rework them into some more durable published form, something that can live on between hard covers and a university library after I'm gone. But it's most likely that all those hundreds of thousands of words were written on the wind. And I already kind of paraphrased that earlier. And eventually all the great ideas JF and I are having on weird studies will probably prove just as evanescent. And that's a melancholy reflection. But on further reflection, I don't know if it really makes any sense to feel sad. If you put in the work, you do have something to show for it. All the ideas you had, all the friends you made, all the time you logged, improving your craft as a writer, they can't take that away from you. What you have to show for years of blogging or podcasting or whatever is pretty much the same thing you have to show for a lifetime of teaching, which of course is my other huge gig, right? I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. All those moments of insight or hilarity or humanity in the classroom, all those students whose lives you enriched, to say nothing of your own soul, enriched by those students, they aren't between hardcovers and a library either. Yeah. We live in a state of liquid modernity where Marx's line, all that is solid melts in air, seems almost literally true. In William Gibson's Idoru, the Tokyo skyline melts and reforms as its nanotech materials make even skyscrapers as fluid and changeable as the stuff in a lava lamp, a poetic image of our situation. The blog medium writhed and mutated under our hands before we were even done writing. Technological change now moves faster than our ideas. Perhaps the liquid condition of online media is the harbinger of a future in which the liquidity of our own condition overtakes the last standing monuments to permanence, and the libraries and journals all dissolve into nanotech sludge. In such a world, hoping you'll have something to show for your life is a mug's game. What we want is something to show we're living. Oh, beautiful. That's it. It's the event. I mean, I've often thought of this. It's one thing to write a book and to take comfort in its presence there on many shelves sitting there. I mean, I've written a book. I know how good it feels. It feels great to have put something down and kind of logged your report with the celestial committee and said, this is what I believe. <laughs> this is what I saw. But 
at the same time, really what matters, like you see it in the the emails we get from people, you know, and um, I hope we're not sounding pompous today because this is really, this comes from a place of gratitude here, what I'm going to say. And I think that's what you're getting at. It's the encounter with others Mm. uh, and how our words change people's ideas about things or sometimes according to some emails change their lives that to me is something that is much more important in a very objective sense than the sense the fleeting sense and ultimately false sense of immortality that is bestowed upon you upon the publication of your book uh, right. you know and and i think that if the goal of scholarly work if the goal of art if the goal of um of uh of intellectual exploration is to transform not transform policy, not transform things on some macro level, but to transform oneself and to transform others who are willing to undertake that transformation, then uh, come on, this is an amazing medium for accomplishing that. Absolutely. You know, uh, we might have done something like this on some community radio station back in the day. In the right. day, and I want to stress how much nostalgia I feel for those pre-internet days. I think that we've lost mm-hmm. some things, but we've also, yeah, I want to recognize here, and we've often shit on technology in this show, but let's be honest, this show would not exist without, you know, yeah. without the internet. Um, we could not have done this at any other stage of human society. Yeah. And, and it's not just like we couldn't have, have had this much fun because it is a lot of fun what we do and we both enjoy it and we have no plans to stop doing it anytime soon. I think both of us kind of see this path kind of just stretching into the horizon. Who knows where it's going to go? But I think that this podcasting in general and Weird Studies in particular has like an impact that we couldn't have hoped to have if we just wrote in a way. Yeah. And I say this as someone who who's a writer and I love I love yeah. writing and I don't Both want write, writers, I don't want yeah. I want I don't want want writing to go away. I don't want books to go away. I hope that the literary culture will continue to thrive in this new world we're in. At the same time, I think that the impact we can have now dwarfs what we would have had otherwise. Yeah. For better and for worse. And that's something. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.